This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Finding Your Bliss with host Judy Liebrach. Heard every Saturday at 1 p.m. on Zoomer Radio. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Finding Your Bliss, a show that helps you find and follow your bliss. I'm Judy Liebrach, and today we have a very special celebrity guest that I've been a fan of for a long time, and that is Jeannie Becker. Jeannie Becker is a Canadian media icon. This celebrated journalist started her career as an actress and then moved into radio and into television as co-host of the groundbreaking series, The New Music. And she became an entertainment anchor on City Pulse News. She went on to become the host of the internationally syndicated fashion television, which aired for 27 years and had viewers in more than 130 countries. Jeannie is also the former editor-in-chief of FQ and Sir Magazines and author of five books, including her outstanding, and I have it right here, autobiography, a little dog-eared at the moment, finding myself in fashion, which I absolutely devoured. She is a featured columnist for many publications, and she writes for a number of lifestyle publications. Her fashion and editorial credits include her clothing line, Edit, by Jeannie Becker, as well as a number of product lines, including shoes, jewelry, and sunglasses. Jeannie is the style editor at the Shopping Channel, and she hosts a regular series for the channel entitled Style Matters with Jeannie Becker. Her numerous awards include her appointment to the Order of Canada in 2014 for her support of the Canadian fashion industry. Wow. The 2012 Canadian Award of Distinction from the Banff World Media Festival and, of course, being honoured with the Canadian Screen Achievement Award for the role she played in changing the way Canadians watch television. Jeannie is also host of the awesome podcast, loving it, called Beyond Style Matters. So in a word, and I guess this is more than a word, Jeannie Becker is truly a bona fide household name. She's interviewed an astonishing number of A-list people and events in the arts, music, and fashion scenes, and she continues to travel in the world as a journalist and sought-after speaker and host. But mostly, what I love about Jeannie Becker is that she gets it. She gets life, and she is the consummate survivor. Jeannie, welcome to Finding Your Bliss. Oh, that's a very nice intro. Thank you so much. <laughs> you know, I, I always say it takes one to know one. So uh, if you think I get it, you know, it's because you get it. <laughs> Thank you, Jeannie. Thank you for saying that. You've had such an interesting trajectory since the beginning of the, your career, when at the age of 16, you got cast in a CBC sitcom, 1968 to 1969, called Toby. I mean, how cool is that? You're a teenager, and here you are, not in one episode, but as it with a recurring role. What was that like? Tell, can you tell us how that happened? That's the coolest. Well, it was uh, amazing. Listen, I always wanted to be on the stage or on TV or, you know, a, a movie star. Didn't every kid growing up in the 50s want that? I mean, I certainly did. Um, but, you know, I I had gone to drama school because my mother, you know, bless her, was always... Uh, adamant about giving me as much of an arts education as she could. So I had, you know, the drama lessons, ballet lessons, guitar lessons, painting lessons, piano lessons, but I did have drama lessons. And and I also went to summer camp and had 
starring roles in the camp plays. But that was about it. That was about it. And one day when I was you know, 16 years old, 1968, um, my best friend at the time, Marsha Rocket, um, called me up and she goes, they're having an open casting call at the CBC and they're doing a, the Canadian version of Gidget, a kind of sitcom. And I think you'd be great. You should go down there and audition. And I went, what? Audition? Like, I don't know. So for some reason, I got the nerve up, chutzpah, we call it, uh, to yes. <laughs> get all dolled up. And I took the streetcar down to the CBC on Jarvis Street and I auditioned for this sitcom. Now, I walked in to that room and I tell you, there must have been a hundred kids in there and they all, you know, were seasoned performers. Either they had gigs on shows like Forest Rangers or they had, uh, they had starred in the Sears catalog campaign or, you know, they, they were all, you know, showbiz kids. And here I was, you know, they said, well, well, you know, what's your experience? And well, I've been in some camp plays, you know, I was in Fiddler on the Roof and I uh, <laughs> lessons, but they let me do the reading and I auditioned and I got a call back a couple of weeks later saying, you know, we're so impressed with you. We think you're so great. You don't have any experience. So we couldn't cast you as the lead in this, but we will cast you as your best friend. And I wow. got cast as, you know, the series is called Toby. And it was like, Canada's answer to Gidget. You know, Sue Petrie was uh, the star and uh, she had a French Canadian boyfriend. And I played her best friend, Phyllis. I mean, it only ran for a year. Actually, um, Mickey Moore played the mother. Oh my goodness. I know Mickey very well. <laughs> amazing, amazing experience for me. I got my actor card. I got an agent. I was a bona fide actress. And my mother, my dear mother, who was always, Oi, don't go into show business. Those people never have happy lives. <laughs> you know, I, uh, I proved to her that I could actually make money at, you know, while I was still in high school doing this thing. And she thought, okay, you know, maybe it's not such a crazy idea after all. Uh, and uh, yeah, the rest of the but the rest is history. Well, I know, and to use a, a Jewish expression, I know that she must have shepped a lot of nachas with you, meaning on a lot of pride and a lot of joy. Your mom was Branya and your dad was Joseph. And I just can't even imagine how much pride they must have felt in you. You went to New York to study at the Herbert Berghoff studio in New York City. What was that like? Okay, so... <laughs> I thought, you know, if you really want to try and get into the big time, you got to go to the big time, the big apple. You got to go to New York. I mean, to be an actress have to, and have to study acting seriously. Uh, I had auditioned for National Theater School um, while I was, you know, still, I, I guess, just about the, the final year of high school. And um, the people there that I auditioned for said to me, you know what, kid? You really do have a lot of uh, stage presence and you've got a lot of potential, but we don't think National Theatre School is the place for you, probably because I barely got through my uh, you know, Romeo and Juliet soliloquy that you know, I had to do for the audition. But I, from, I also did a piece from the Fantastics, that oh, Broadway play, and that they really they thought, oh, okay, you know, they said, you, so you've got potential, but you're not, not the right material for National Theatre School, but we know of this acting school in New York that you don't even have to audition to get in, but all the teachers are bona fide seasoned actors and actresses. And this would be a great place for you to go. It's called the Herbert Berghoff studio, which he ran with his wife, Uta Hagen, who was a, a great uh, New York actress as well. Oh. 
So I thought, really? And you don't have to audition? And this is like incredible. And so I signed up for the Herbert Berghoff studio where you could pick all kinds of great classes to go to and all being taught by actual professionals in the business. And it was located in the West Village. It was the coolest thing. I mean, I was 19 years old. This was 1971. My first time really away from home. My mother, of course, was plutzing, not, not happy really that I was had chosen to do this, but I saved up all my money. I worked at a, a, a flower shop all summer long and, you know, saved up my money and I was going to go to New York and try to make it. And um, I remember, you know, listen, my parents are Holocaust survivors, so we were so precious to them, as I'm sure, you know, you don't have to be a Holocaust survivor to really feel that your kids are that precious, but they were not really too happy about me going off to pursue my dreams. But my dad had always, you know, told me to be fearless and tenacious, you know, don't be afraid and never give up. And I thought, no, no, I'm, I'm going to do this. So my mom also raised us to follow our dreams, you know, believe in your dreams, believe in yourself. So the $500 that I had saved up all summer to get me to New York, sewed it into my panties. I had a pair of because she said when she was a young girl going off to the big city in Poland to, to study, um, her mother sewed the money into her panties because that's where they would never find it. And I'm thinking to myself, Mom, that might be the first place they'd find it. <laughs> okay. I got in grandma's with a 500 bucks in my panties. Wow. And uh, took for uh, New York City. And I didn't really know anyone. I had a cousin, Charles, that I think put me up for the first night. And then Someone had told me that there was this really cool family living on the Upper uh, West Side. I think their last name was the Aldens. And the father was a soap opera writer. The mother had been like a former chorus girl. And they had two sons, one that was an assistant director. He was working on Godspell at the time. And another guy, (laughs) the other son, was uh, starring in a production of Waiting for Godot (laughs) off-Broadway. So this showbiz family and they would take me under their wing if I just called them up and explained my situation and I did and this family took me in I mean the cool like patron wow. patrons of the arts wow. and I you know got to see the world you know through that lens through their eyes for a while and then one day I went to the union office actors union office um because someone said go there because you'll often find other you know young actresses looking for roommates <laughs> and I looked on the board and there was uh, a little notice that said, young actress looking for another young actress to share her, you know, Upper West Side That's apartment. So cool. uh, with, you know, call Jeannie. Oh, like the, ad, the, the other actress's name was Jeannie. <laughs> so I thought, well, this is God talking to me. Um, but here, I uh, phoned this girl, Jeannie. Jeannie Perry was her name. Be- beautiful girl from uh, Washington, uh, D.C. that had come to New York to study. And uh, I moved into, you know, I, I she had the one the bedroom. I had, you know, the living room floor, but, you know, I had a mattress on the floor and, and I was set to go living on Riverside Drive and going to acting school in the world by subway every day. And it was just, it was such a sweet period because it was the first time I'd been away from home. And, and it was, um, I don't know, it was a very, very magical time when you really felt without question that the world was your oyster and, and, you know, anything was possible. And I was living the dream. What took you from there to Paris to study mime with someone who, Etienne, who had studied with Marcel Marceau? Well, no, actually, he was the old man that taught Marcel Marceau. 
the man I studied with. I studied with Marceau's teacher. Oh my gosh. What happened was that, so after, you know, almost a year in New York, you know, I thought, you know, I, I'm, well, of course, I really missed home. I missed my boyfriend the, at the time. And I, I just, I thought, I want to make sure that I want to, you know, I want to be really well-rounded. So I want to make sure that I'm smart academically too. You know, I should really know a lot about the theater, not just learn how to perform on a stage. So I'm going to go back and get a university education. I'm going to go back and uh, to York University and enroll in theater performance department there, which was a very new department. That's so cool. Yeah, it was a very cool. I mean, like I have classes like Sky Gilbert, you know, I, it, like a lot. It was a very cool cool place to be at the time. However, on about the second or third day of classes, they gave us these army handbooks, like the 5BX and 10BX exercise pamphlet, you know, do your push-ups. Do. And I thought, oh, I just come from studying in New York with you know, the woman that had you know, danced in the Martha Graham Dance Company. And I, you know, like, I, this is so not me. And I was a very physical, you know, corporal, expressive uh, type of uh, performer, I said, I've got to take some other classes or I'm going to lose my sanity in this, you know, academic kind of conservative environment. So I found out that there was a a guy teaching mime in downtown Toronto. And I convinced my best friend, Penny, to come to mime classes with me, you know, twice a week or whatever it was, you know, we'd go after university class got out, we would go downtown and we studied mime and we had a great, we loved it. It was Fabulous. It was so great. And after a few months of that, the mime that was teaching the class, Paul Golan, said to me, you know, you really have potential as a mime artist and you should go to Paris and study with the old man that I studied with, who's still teaching in his basement in the Bois de Boulogne. And I thought, oh, that sounds so romantic. Yes, it's time for me to go to Paris. <laughs> so after I finished that first year of university, I went to Paris again, not knowing anyone, not really speaking the language at all. Um, but you know, I had worked at uh, at the Colonial Tavern as a cocktail waitress all summer, so I saved up the money to go. And uh, I arrived in Paris, and you know, what 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 can I say? What can I say to be 21 years old in the city of light, uh, pursuing your dreams of being an artist? It was the most exquisite time in my life, um, and uh, uh, just a great adventure. Yeah. And you, you continued your love affair with Paris for many years, going to Pret-a-Porter shows twice a year, going to Couturier shows twice a year, and even bringing your two daughters mm-hmm. for the trip of a lifetime years later. Many years later, you're right. After I had gone through the music thing and, uh, you know, and, and got my feet wet in the fashion world. Wow. Um, thanks to uh, the brilliant Moses Neimer, who was, you know, his philosophy, which, you know, how, how, how greatly I have applauded it my whole life was, you know, like, lock yourself out, kids. You know, if you've got a dream, <laughs> go for it. And, you know, always just, I felt allowed me the privilege of, of, uh, of running, you know, taking the ball and running with it. So um, fashion television was, you know, again, another exquisite chapter in my life for 27 years. Um, and being able to, you know, actually work in Paris for so many years, you know, er- four seasons a year, because I would go twice a year for the uh, Pret-a-Porter seasons. And then there were two couture seasons in Paris every year. So at least four times a year, I was going to Paris. And as my daughter came of age, I got to take them and take them back to my old haunts and, and turn them on to uh, 
that artistic life. And <laughs> sometimes, you know, it's like, be careful what you wish for, right? Because I encourage my kids, I think, to really pursue a, a career, a life in, in the arts, because I, I just always thought that was such a, a wonderful way to, to live uh, in this world. Um, and now they're both artists and, you know, artists struggle. <laughs> forgot to tell them about that part. <laughs> I know. I, I have a daughter who's a singer too, an actor and a singer. So I, I get that whole trajectory, but you have to do what you love. And and yet you made a very conscious decision at a certain point to not be just a struggling artist living in a garret, I think, as you put it, and to want more. And I think that's what led you to 99 Queen Street West, where you were hired, like also an amazing thing, as a co-host for the new music with J.D. Roberts. What a fascinating period that must have been. Yeah. Well, the, the whole serendipity of it, just to uh, backtrack just a little bit. So after um, I finished my studies in Paris, I came back to Toronto for love. Um, and, you know, it's always about a guy, right? You're it's always about love. It's always. <laughs> it's always about love. It's always about love. Well, in the world, it really matters. Um, and I ended up uh, going back to York University for a year. And then the fellow that I was with got a fellowship to do um, postgraduate work at Memorial University in St. John's, Newfoundland, because he was a folklorist and, you know, what a, that was a perfect place to go. So uh, he said, you know, well, why don't you come with me? And I'm like, but I'm a mime artist. What am I going to do in Newfoundland? <laughs> but okay, I'll go. So we took off for Newfoundland. I got there and there was nothing really going on for mime artists. I was the only mime artist in the province. I did some kids theater, but I knocked on the door of CBC radio because I thought I should be an arts reporter. I'd been studying the arts for so long. I wanted to talk about the arts and tell stories about artists. And for some crazy reason, they said, okay. Uh, so I got a job with CBC Radio as an arts reporter, did that for three years. Then we decided to come back um, you know, to Toronto. So my uh, ex wanted to uh, do his um, doctorate thesis in on the subject of strippers and cab drivers. He wanted to do urban folklore. You know, it was, we had enough of the fiddlers around the bay. And uh, we both came back to Toronto. And I thought I was armed with all these tapes. You know, I was a, a professional radio gal. So I knocked on every radio station door. Um, I got hired by uh, J.R. Wood, who was the program director of Chum Radio, 1050 Chum AM, which was the radio station I grew up with under the covers every night. It was just a, a they hired me to be their good news girl. And then um, serendipitously, that was the year that Moses sold City TV to Chum Radio, to the Waters family, to Chum. So all of a sudden, they decided they wanted to cross-promote people. So JD, who is the boss jock on Chum at the time, gorgeous guy, of course, JD got chosen and I got chosen as the chum good news girl, to come over and host this groundbreaking uh, magazine show called The New Music. And uh, yeah, it was like, wow, I'm back in television. You know, I'm back. Forget about the radio now. I can, you know. It was, uh, it was a very, very sweet time. It was incredible because we got to make it up as we went along. There were no rules. We were encouraged to break all the rules. We were flying by the seat of our pants. But again, you know, having someone like Moses at the helm, who was all about that, you know, and all about reinvention and all about trailblazing and all about just going for it. And, and also a brilliant genius guy, John Martin, who was uh, running that whole music uh, department at City TV at the time. 
um, he, he produced the new music and, and, and we all started much music together a few years later. And you, you have to understand too, and I, I think you, you know this, that rock stars at that time weren't used to the medium of television in the way that, of course, everyone's used to the medium of television now. But in those days, the only places that you would see these rock and rollers, these musicians, would be on shows like Dick Clark's American Bandstand or, you know, the, the British shows like Top of the Pops or or shows like Hullabaloo or Shindig. You you really never went into hotel rooms with or bathtub. a TV Or bathtubs. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Once again, you know, the world was my oyster, and uh, I got to you know, push all kinds of boundaries and blaze all kinds of trails. And uh, yeah, it was uh, it was a very very magical um, time in the media. I think too, when all of a sudden, you know, all the rules, you know, just begged to be broken, and we broke them and created something new. What a fascinating time that must have been. One of the most exciting times ever in Canadian television. Wow. We're going to go on a short commercial break. When we come back, we're going to hear all about media mogul Moses Neimer and his incredible impact on your career. Back in a moment. Finding Your Bliss is brought to you by Create, Canada's leading fertility centre for over 25 years. Create is here for anyone struggling with infertility or in need of assisted reproductive technology to have children. Create is about cutting-edge science from highly skilled doctors. In unprecedented times like these, Create is about ensuring the safety of all patients and staff. Create has made important changes to protect you by ensuring social distancing, wearing masks, as well as screening before entering. So what about the bundle of joy that you've been hoping would come into your family? Create Fertility Center is here for you. Visit createivf.com to keep up with the latest changes and learn about Create Fertility Center's comprehensive care for every fertility journey. Keep safe and healthy during these challenging days, remembering that life is about moments that we create together. We are back, and this is Zoomer Radio AM 740, FM 96.7, and this is my exclusive interview with Canadian media icon, television personality, host of fashion television for 27 years, podcast host, style editor, host of the Shopping Channel, and author of five books, and of course, I'm speaking about Jeannie Becker. Jeannie, it's so great to have you here. You credit Moses Neimer for really catapulting and for having a huge impact on your career. And of course, he is, you know, the wonderkind of, of City TV and of much music, but he's also, of course, the owner of this station, of Zoomer Radio. And and you credit him, this innovative mastermind, for toughening you up. And And I wonder if that toughening up is what allowed you to do this unbelievable job being the host and such a creative force behind fashion television for 27 years in 130 countries. I mean, it's truly remarkable that, I mean, this, that, that is a credit like no other. Uh, what, how did Moses impact you in all of that? Oh, okay. And for my next book, uh, <laughs> the Mo- Moses, I could go on and on. Moses. You know, I've said in the past, and I truly, truly do love the guy. And he was probably one of the, he, he was my biggest mentor as he mentored so many people. But, you know, I always felt I had a love-hate relationship with him because boy, Moses could be tough. And uh, the wonderful 
Marilyn Lightstone, you know, once I think felt sorry for me or something and, and, and wisely said to me, you know, just don't take Moses that seriously. He knows how to push the buttons. He loves to push people. <laughs> so, you know, uh, just for an example, okay, so for an example, and now, I'm, you know, it, it's, oh, mon Dieu, how could he have done that? You know, but at the time, I, if he hadn't have done this, I don't think I would be where I am or have accomplished as much as I did. I was pregnant um, with uh, Becky, my first baby, uh, in 1987. She was born. I worked up until the very end because fashion television had just started to take off. We launched that show in 1985. So really a very crucial time. The show was like in its second year and was like really off the charts, popular. And I was loving it. And I thought, oh, I've been working my whole career for this. You know, this is my baby. This is so great. But I, hey, I'm having a baby. And I felt I had to have that baby if I was ever going to have a baby because I was, you know, already 35 at the time. You know, that as my mother used to say, the store is going to close if you're going to have a baby. You better have it. So um, there I was feeling like a beached whale, like nine months pregnant, just about to pop, sitting in the makeup room of the old city TV building on Queen Street uh, East. And Moses walked in. And, you know, he said, I remember, I remember this moment. You know, there are those life-defining moments that you just are etched in your mind and heart forever and he actually perched himself on the on the counter and i'm in the makeup chair feeling like because i gained a lot of weight and he said uh so when do you think you're going to be coming back to work you know and i was like do like any second i went well i don't know Moses. i'm not really sure he goes because you know there's a lineup of 20 something year old girls outside my office door waiting for your job and in those days judy you do realize People didn't have to hold your job for you. You know, now gals are really lucky. They can take a year off, mat leave, and the, the employer has to give them the same job when they come back. But in those days, they didn't. In those days, they may have had to give you a job after three months, but it could, might be any job. And I thought, oh, I worked so long and hard for this job that I was so passionate about. So I just defiantly looked up at Moses and I said, Moses, I'll come back in a couple of weeks. Don't worry about me. <laughs> That's what I wanted to hear. <laughs> and off he went. About two weeks later, I was back at work. I mean, I, he was sending cameramen to my house to record voiceovers. Voiceovers. Like, I on the bank, oh. it was like, you know, on my breast. But I <laughs> went back to work two weeks later. And you know what? I did the same thing with baby number two. And you know what? I don't regret it. I really don't regret it. I mean, do I regret, like any mother in her right mind would regret the opportunity to spend more time with my kids throughout my career, the way it's, you know, absolutely. I, I regret not being able to spend more time with my parents, with my sister, with so many people who are near and dear to me, you know, I can't really be with now. That being said, if I hadn't have done that, there was, I, I seriously believe I would have not have had the success that I had because that's what it was about at that time. I don't know how girls do it today. Maybe you can. I always felt I was a master juggler. I had to do that too. Yeah. Um, yeah. Absolutely. That's sort of how Moses toughened me up. You know, one of the many ways. And, uh, and you go, you, you go to, I mean, come on. This is like, this is a very special kind of gig lifestyle what the people feel for and you've got to want it more than you want anything else in in your life almost and i don't want to say 
Like I wanted it more than I wanted kids. No, I did. And that's why I was always torn. But, um, you know, it is a, it, it is a, a lifestyle of always being torn. And if you're not prepared to always be torn in that way, don't bother pursuing it. Absolutely. We met many years ago, Jeannie, because uh, we both were married before. You were married to Bob McGee. And I don't know if you remember this. I was married to a comedian named Simon. I've been with Cliff, who is a fertility doctor for many years. But I did this interview with you in the Toronto Wedding Handbook. And you told me all about your uh, your marriage in Switzerland. And you were you were in very good company with the Mervishes and with Nikki uh, Newman on The Young and the Restless. But I, I did an interview with you at that at that time in your life with with um with McGee. Oh, and yeah, we went to uh, we eloped and got married at some you know judge's office in Mimico or something, and then <laughs> went to Switzerland the next day. Oh my so god! Started, yeah, so- that was a very very romantic uh, story. Again, you know that was. Uh, Listen, it was uh, the 80s. We were all living life large. Yeah, that's yeah. so interesting, yes. Judy. Yeah. Isn't that funny? Isn't that funny? And so we both had had those lives and we both have new loves in our life. And and life does go on. And you're, you're the most wonderful example of that. But tell me what happened. Here you are with this unbelievable, dreamy career that 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 is drool worthy, right? Like people are just going, wow, you've got two beautiful kids everything is wonderful and you get devastated by a husband and somehow a lot of people would curl up into a ball, but Jeannie Becker doesn't do that. And, and also we have another common person, which was Chris Hindeman. Cause I knew Chris, your very dear friend, Chris and Steven, they were there for you. They were the ones that were absolutely there for you when you broke up. Do you think it was Shanta Claire and creating that wonderful farmhouse that Stephen and Chris helped you design and having a place to go with girls? Like, what do you think just kept you going and moving forward, not just moving forward, but in the most magnificent way? What kept me going is what kept me going everywhere, every day, anytime, whatever was happening in my life. It's what keeps me going today. It's the motto of my late great father, the Holocaust survivor, who said, don't be afraid and never give up. And that's what kept me going. It, you do not you have to be fearless, as scary as things look and as incomprehensibly you know, uh, frightening as my situation looked when I just saw, you know, saw that my husband was not going to be there for me. And I had these two little girls that I would have to raise. And we're, ah, how was I going to do it with this big monstrous career that I created? Um, I I just thought, no, I I can't be afraid. Just like I wasn't afraid when I went to audition for that CBC role. Just like I wasn't afraid when I went to New York, not knowing anybody or flew to Paris, not knowing anybody. You know, you just have to be fearless and you have to be tenacious because you just got to be a pit bull and you just got to keep putting one foot in front of the other, no matter what. Yeah. I mean, I remember nights when Chris Hindman would, you know, come to my door in the middle of the night, you know, shortly after my, you know, ex had moved out of the house and, it, you know, he'd bring me a pizza and, and we'd sit on the couch and I just be sobbing and telling him I wanted to end it all. And, you know, the, the little girls were, you know, upstairs sleeping in bed and he was like, no, you know, you've got your, you've got your kids, you've got, you got to hang in there. You've got your daughters to live for. You've got so much going on. You've got so much, you know, give me these pep talks. And I, I started to, you know, 
look at life through that lens. And, and I realized that, yes, I did have so much to live for. And what a, what a stupid cop out that would be to just, you know, split because things hadn't worked out for me. No, I, I had to hang in there. I had to be fearless and be tenacious if I wanted to, to, to rebuild my life. And, you know, I, my parents certainly rebuilt their shattered lives and, and were so devastated. I mean, wow, if they could do that, surely I could, uh, I could rebuild my life. Um, and I did. What did it, this don't give up mantra, I love that, that your dad, Joseph, used to say, they wrote a book called Joy Runs Deeper. And I said earlier that they must have been so proud of you time and time again, and all of your incredible accomplishments, like the time that you went with your mother back to Poland, and you were treated like royalty when you walked in. I mean, my goodness, that's talk about, you know, giving back to your parents, like how wonderful. How proud were you of them when they wrote that book, Joy Runs Deeper? Well, the thing is that this book was written, first of all, my, my dad wrote it um, in his later years, actually got too sick uh, to really complete it. So his part of the book, because it's in two parts, and his part of the book goes right up until the actual, you know, the horrors of the wars start happening. And um, But he wrote his uh, memoir, Longhand in Yiddish. So my mother, um, after my dad died in... Uh, in the late 80s, she's just simply had that manuscript shoved in a desk drawer. My mother, on the other hand, had written about a 50-page manuscript that she banged out on this little portable typewriter back in, it might it must have been the 60s or 70s. And my mother was always fancied herself a writer in a way. She was very expressive, a very a wonderful communicator, great storyteller. And she wrote the whole saga of the beautiful part of it, you know, growing up in this idyllic little shtetl in Poland and then the what happened when her world just exploded and obviously the horrors of the war and how she lost everybody and how she and my dad went on the run together and survived the Holocaust depending on the kindness of strangers I mean they never went to a camp they were on the run the whole time so anyway they had written and my mother always wanted her manuscript to be turned into a book oh more than a book a movie because my sister is, is also a filmmaker and, and uh, a, a great writer. And I was in the business and she always thought, why can't you make this into a movie? Ah, it's like, mom, it's not so easy. So, <laughs> and then she heard about the Azraeli Foundation, a brilliant foundation uh, created by the late David Azraeli, a, a Montreal philanthropist, who if they will publish your Holocaust memoirs if you as a survivor have written it yourself. So they get all these manuscripts and every year they publish a few and they distribute them for free to, to schools. And they and I ended up when my mom's book finally got published in 2014, which was the year before she died. I actually, you know, have taken that book and gone and spoken to uh, to groups and distribute it uh, with, with the biggest mitzvah I can imagine to keep my parents' stories alive all the incredible stories of survivors that we need to hear again and again and again lest we forget so of course i was so so proud of my parents for talking about the horrors of the holocaust um and wanting to share their stories because you know so many survivors just simply can't do it they don't want to they can't they just you know, shut it out. And I, it's understandable. I, get, I certainly don't fault them for that. I totally get it. But my parents said, no, it might hurt to tell these stories, but we've got to tell them. 
And these stories are precisely what made me who I am today. Moses left me with toughness, and my my parents' story of, of tenacity and uh, fearlessness—that's yeah, a winning combination, right? I got to tell you, you're terrific. You, you okay? We're going to go back to fashion television for a second because you have this 27 year gig that's like the dream gig, and you met the most fabulous people. You had a very long standing relationship with Carl Lagerfeld. Can you tell me about the bond that you shared with him? Oh. Well, Carl Lagerfeld was, uh, you know, another great mentor uh, to me, actually, as well, because his whole um, way of, of really going through the world was always about looking ahead, looking ahead, looking ahead. He had a very hard time sometimes even talking about the collection that he had just sent down the runway because he wanted to talk about what he was going to do tomorrow. You know, it was always about on to the next. And I thought that was a great way to be. Um, he also really appreciated my enthusiasm. I don't think most people in the fashion world had seen anybody quite like me until I came along. I was all about celebrating the scene and I was all about being enthusiastic and just really uh, always in this wide-eyed wonder. I mean, there was nothing kind of pretentious about me and certainly I wasn't um, a snooty fashionista. I was genuinely a fashion fan the way I had been a music fan. And I wasn't necessarily an expert in the field, but I just, I loved the whole story of, of uh, creation and, and what, what the creative process. And, and I understood that these people were ultimately artists, even though many of them don't consider themselves to be that. But then they had to keep telling their story each season. It was a tough job for them. Um, and I was just eager to share their stories and introduce them to the world. Um, so. Carl always appreciated my enthusiasm. He told me that many, many times. And after every show, you know, 99% of the time, he'd look for me almost. And, and you know, the minute he'd spot me in the big scrum of reporters trying to get to him, he, you know, he would grab my hand and pull me in and be very willing to answer my questions. And I had many great conversations with him. And he's a, a brilliant, uh, wonderful uh, Renaissance man who, you know, he drove, drove a little a lot of people are a little crazy. He could be very irreverent and uh, very naughty in his comments. He said, you know, I remember once he called Adele fat or something, which is, oh my God, <laughs> terrible boy, really not, not good. But you couldn't, I couldn't hold any of that against him because I don't even think he took himself that seriously. He was always just winding people up and he wanted to get, you know, responses from people and he did. Isaac Mizrahi, I think, was a tender person, and I and I know that he came from a background of a family of a, sort of a religious family, and mm-hmm. he was he, there was some sweetness that I felt uh, whenever I heard, and I know you had a very close relationship yeah. with him as well. I love Isaac, and reconnected with him recently on uh, one of my podcasts, so that was a great conversation. I always looked at Isaac as being a kind of neurotic. You know, this is like a yeshiva boy turned designer. Like, boy, how does that happen? He's written a, a, a wonderful memoir, got published in, I think, 2019 called I Am. Uh, and I totally recommend that if you really want to know his story. But he, he, it was hard for him growing up gay, certainly hard for a lot of people um, at the time, you know, that he was growing up. Um, but again, he had a very wonderful relationship with his mother. Who is uh, who encouraged him greatly, and I had the the absolute joy of sitting with every season. You know, I'd go to Isaac's show, 
And for whatever reason, he would sit me next to his mother in the front row. So, you know, talk about <laughs> yelling like uh, his mother, Sarah, was a beautiful uh, woman. Very, uh, I, I think she's, I think she's still alive today. I, I hope she is. Um, but just a beautifully dressed, you know, you could see where Isaac got that part of uh, his talent from. Um, and yeah, he, he, I loved Isaac for his uh, vulnerability. You know, he was, he was a little neurotic. I think the best of us are and wasn't afraid to admit it. You did a podcast recently with Betsy Johnson, and I love that interview. And you describe her as effervescent, like a glass of champagne. And I, I just love her. I find that you have a very similar spirit to Betsy Johnson. Betsy, like so many great men and women I know, uh, she is really in touch with her inner girl, like with her inner child. And I think that I would hope, I try my best to do that. I mean, Jean-Paul Gaultier does that. that that's a, a reason why I love him. You know, some of the, the great uh, artists of our time, I mean, they're really in touch with their inner child. And for her 60th birthday, so it's going back to it, uh, it was also a extra special for me because I got to take my daughter, Joey. So imagine taking your daughter at the time. So Joey must have been at, uh, maybe like, 14 years old or something. Betsy decided to have a, she had a home in the Hamptons at the time, a beautiful place called My Blue Heaven, which was this romantic little cottage. She had all the media bust in to this cottage in the Hamptons and she created like a fairy tale world at the cottage. And at, at every room that you walked into, there was a different scene going on. So one room, there was like the princess and the pea and there was a girl dressed in some fabulous Betsy Johnson creation like, you know, tossing and turning on this, you know, pile of mattresses. There was, a, you know, like out in the garden, there was Little Miss Muffet sitting on a tuffet. No, of course, all, they were all dressed in Betsy Club. And then we all sat around uh, the swimming pool and she had this huge parade of uh, models going around that. And then, of course, Betsy did her usual cartwheels, which I think she probably could still do, and jumped into the pool at the end of the show. It was just a wonderful, wonderful event. I mean, that's when fashion shows, some of them were, really out there i mean listen it's it's not really like that anymore yes they produce some great fashion films and you can see some really interesting you know fashion shows on video because that's the way most people have to see them now we can't <clears throat> invite people to sit in the seats um but that that whole era of a kind of hedonism or a kind of excess where people spent all this money on staging these grand fashion presentations like it, it, that, that's kind of dissipated now. And those of us who remember those days really <laughs> lament the fact that they are no more. It was fashion's glory days, the golden age of fashion that is wow. over. Wow. And you were there. You were there for all of it. You were even there for one of Valentino's last oh. fashion shows. And oh. he gave you an interview. He actually granted you an interview. I think he didn't grant many people an yeah, interview. And you brought it. When Valentino announced his retirement, uh, he gave me the exclusive interview, you know, I remember I was sitting in, I was in Paris. I was sitting at a little cafe and his uh, right-hand person called me up and, can you come right now? Mr. Valentino wants to talk to you. He's going to tell you, you know, that he's leaving the business. And I was like, ah. But just before that, Valentino threw an exquisite show in Rome. It was, for, I think, for something like his 45th anniversary in the business. And they had, like, models in these gorgeous red gowns swinging from ropes, like, <laughs> in front of the... Uh, architectural wonders of Rome like just it was uh, the, in front of the Colosseum there were like we were standing on this rooftop 
watching this display, like you've never seen anything like it in your life. I mean, the party was just over the top. Yeah, it was incredible. And, and the red wow. carpet, you wow. know, the, uh, of, of that evening, I remember every famous person that you'd ever like dream of was there. And because I was very um, friendly with the people at the House of Valentino, and they were very, very good to fashion television, very, very nice to me. They made sure I was like one well, of the first one to interview all the people coming down the red carpet. And it was wow. just it was incredible. Wow. I'll have to dig up that those old tapes to, to see exactly who was there. But it was pretty, you know, maybe I written about it in a book. I can't even remember now. I've got so many stories. <laughs> I love to, you know, just really go over some of those names because it was just the who's who of, uh, of Hollywood. And uh, so cool. Amazing. You mentioned models and you worked mm-hmm. with many of them. And I think that must be such a tough gig to be a model, even when you're at, at the supermodel status. I want to ask you about Cindy Crawford, because I've also met her and really like her. As I think she's a lovely person. Maybe it's the fellow Pisces. And I know you're a Pisces. I'm a Pisces. And so is she. Is there a moment that stands out for you with Cindy Crawford? Well, I can't really think of any anecdotes in particular. I always had a, a great relationship with Cindy. There was a an extra amount of kind of simpatico going on, I think, between the two of us, because she hosted a show on MTV called House of Style, which was also a fashion television kind of show. Nothing like our show, of course, not as good as our show. <laughs> but and, and and many years after the fact, you know, I, I, it was sometime probably in the late 90s that she was doing that. I mean, we had been doing our shows since the mid 80s. So there was, you know, a little bit of that. But uh, Cindy's lovely. Cindy was very, always very professional. I remember the very first time I met her, she made, and, and she had come to Toronto, and I, I seem to remember interviewing her at some department store. Um, and she was very adamant about the fact that she was a businesswoman first and foremost. You know, she really, and she has always seen her career as that, as all you know, successful models must see their careers as that. But in those early days, not many really did. I don't think they really, they were caught up with the glam of it and the the art of it. Because I think there is some, you know, artistry involved, uh, certainly in modeling. It's like you're a performance artist. Um, but, but Cindy was a smart one, really a smart one. And one that really uh, got the fact that, you know, I think she said at one time before she really got totally swept away with modeling, she wanted to be uh, in the medical profession or a scientist or something of that nature. Um, you know, so I was like, wow, okay, this one's smart. Not, not all of them <laughs> that well. And some models, you know, didn't really have that much to say, you know, but Cindy was always one that you could have a great conversation with. Speaking of great conversations, you're not going to believe this, guys. And I can tell you, this has never happened before in 70 episodes of our program, Finding Your Bliss. That's seven zero. But we are going to have to do a two-parter of this interview because we have so much more to share with you. We're going to be continuing this exclusive interview with Jeannie Becker. I can't believe it, a part two next week. We'll have more of Jeannie and hear all about her interview with Elton John, her podcast, Beyond Style Matters, her shopping channel gig where she is the style editor, her experience as a judge on Canada's Next Top Model, and so much more. Right now, we're going to go on a short commercial break. And when we come back, we have a real treat in store for you. Joey O'Neill, who also happens to be Jeannie Becker's youngest daughter, is going to be singing a track from her album, Ever Ahead. Back in a moment. 
Finding Your Bliss is brought to you by Create, Canada's leading fertility center for over 25 years. Create is here for anyone struggling with infertility or in need of assisted reproductive technology to have children. Create is about cutting-edge science from highly skilled doctors. In unprecedented times like these, Create is about ensuring the safety of all patients and staff. Create has made important changes to protect you by ensuring social distancing, wearing masks, as well as screening before entering. So what about the bundle of joy that you've been hoping would come into your family? Create Fertility Center is here for you. Visit createivf.com to keep up with the latest changes and learn about Create Fertility Center's comprehensive care for every fertility journey. Keep safe and healthy during these challenging days, remembering that life is about moments that we create together. We are back, and this is Finding Your Bliss on Zoomer Radio, AM 740, FM 96.7. Today, we're joined by Canadian country folk singer-songwriter, Joey O'Neill. Let me tell you a little bit more about her. From Joey's Klondike Cabin wafts reflective folk country Canadiana and wood smoke. Though much of her time is spent cutting kindling wood and hauling water around her off-grid Yukon home, she released her sophomore LP, Ever Ahead, last year, produced by pedal steel guitar legend Aaron Goldstein and recorded at Toronto's Baldwin Street Sound. It's an undeniably classic road trip album that Exclaim Magazine deems is made up of postcard-like twanged-out folk tracks and Canadian beats dubs, an audiobook narrated behind bluesy Western melodies inspired by countless cross-country journeys with her trusty canine co-pilot named Oblio. Its nine original songs demand self-reflection, as long drives often do, and speak of fixing things rendered broken, correcting cycles of same mistakes, and moving on. Thanks to canorous string plucking, L.A. sound piano chords, striking guitar and steel solos, and Jordanaire-zesque backup vocals, this collection of tracks whispers influences of her very own glove compartment capsule of quintessential cassette tapes. Most of all, this ode to the road reminds us to keep on trucking as the next great personal epiphany is ever ahead. Having shared stages with the likes of Julie Duaron, Bazia Bulat, and Jennifer Castle, she often ventures back and forth between her territorial and provincial homelands, playing intimate shows along the way. Let's listen now to Joey O'Neill singing, Maybe Tomorrow. There's a voice that keeps on calling me down the road that's where I'll always be every stop I make I'm making you friend can't stay for long just turn around and I'm gone again maybe tomorrow I wanna settle down until tomorrow I'll just keep moving on down this road that never seems to end Where new adventure lies just around the bend If you want to join me for a while Just grab your head, come travel like that 
it's hobo style Maybe tomorrow I wanna settle down Till tomorrow the whole world is my home There's a world that's waiting to unfold A brand new tale no one has ever told We've journeyed far, but you know it won't be long We're almost there, we've paid our fare with a hobo song Maybe tomorrow I wanna settle down Until tomorrow I'll just keep moving on Tomorrow I'll find what I call home Until tomorrow you know I'm free Wow, that was so beautiful. Thank you, Joey. Love that. Each week we spotlight a singer, songwriter, or musician on the show. If you're a singer, please write to us at music at findingyourbliss.com. Also, we encourage you to visit us at Finding Your Bliss magazine and sign up for Bliss News, which you'll find at the bottom of the homepage at www.findingyourbliss.com. And of course, you can follow us at The Bliss Minute on Instagram and Facebook. I would like to thank my guests, Jeannie Becker and Joey O'Neill for being here today. Also, a big thank you to our supervising producer, Mag Ruffman, production manager, Siobhan Kylie, PA researcher and editor, Haley Allegia, audio producer, Faz Kazi, and to everyone here at Zoomer. And of course, a big thank you to our sponsor, the Create Fertility Center. This show has been recorded by Squadcast. We're going to close out the show today with a quote from Henna Sohail, and here it is. In a world led with a herd mentality, it takes immense courage, resolve, and sacrifice to maintain the purity of your form. You have to be at peace with being misunderstood. You have to be at peace with walking alone. You have to be at peace with being judged. In the end, just remember, if the world is an array of art, you are the masterpiece. We invite you again to join us next week for part two of our interview with Jeannie Becker. For all of us here at Finding Your Bliss, I'm Judy Liebrach, reminding you all to take one step closer to finding your bliss. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.